All right. Well, if you joined us last week, you got to see both of us up here with Jesus in the middle. And again, we're doing that again today with Andrew and, and me preaching together with Jesus in the middle, because this is a sensitive topic that we are preaching on today, and that topic is um, the authority of scripture when it comes to sexuality, and so if you're caught off guard, um, I apologize, we've been trying to keep you informed that today we are talking about a sensitive topic, which is why we are not live streaming, um, but people can access the recording of this later. Um, we've been building on this idea of the authority of scripture for quite a while now, um, almost two months now and how the authority of scripture really affects how we live our lives. Um, if we take the Bible seriously, then how do we live that out um, as followers of Christ? And um, today on the topic of sexuality, specifically homosexuality, it is one of the most highly debated um, topics in our culture today, um, even among Christians. And what I want you to, what I want to preface with today is that this is not a political conversation. This is a biblical one that we are focusing on today. So I can't tell you how to vote today. I can't tell you um, how this should change your political views on this topic or that topic, um, because today we're taking a biblical approach. We just want to know what do the scriptures say and how do we live that out. Um, on the topic of homosexuality, it is one of the most difficult sins to untangle and process in this world. This is because in our culture today, homosexuality is um, completely tied up in somebody's identity and who they are. Um, it affects the mind, it affects the will, it affects the emotions, and it affects the body. Um, it affects their lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that is often celebrated um, in a very prideful way. I'm sure many of you have heard of pride parades, um, but for us as Christians, sometimes we look at those prideful things and we think, well, that's just a celebration of sin. I mean, I wouldn't want to take my sin of greed and have a big parade about my my struggle with greed or um, my struggle with lust or drunkenness or dishonesty. Um, so why would we think that it's okay to have a a prideful parade celebrating sexuality that we believe goes against God's design. And so this is um, what we want to untangle today and process a little bit with you today. Um, wherever your story is at, uh, I hope that you can take whatever questions you may have, um, whatever wrestlings you may have, um, back to the Holy Spirit. Um, because again, there may be things today that you don't agree with, that you might find offensive, because again, the Bible can sometimes be offensive <laughs> to what we are used to or what we know. Um, in my own experience, um, I have had friends who were gay, lesbian, bisexual. Um, I had three friends in high school, very close friends of mine, um, who I knew had these feelings um, or who um, had, hadn't maybe come out to me yet, but I knew that they had those feelings. And two of my closer friends who did um, who I spent a lot of t time with lived homosexual lifestyles in high school. Um, I didn't agree with their life choices, but they were um, some of my best friends. Um, one of my friends was so kind to me that he took me to my senior prom because I didn't have a date, even though he was homosexual, and he just came as a friend for me. Um, I had another closer friend um, who 
was bisexual but went to youth group with me and went to church with me every week. We'd go to bebops every Sunday after church. And she even lived in my house for a period of time. And we'd sit in the driveway listening to Disney songs. And um, when I went to Riverside for a summer to work as a counselor, we exchanged letters all summer long. And we continued being friends um, for a little bit in college. And so I, I loved that friendship. They were my friends even though I didn't agree with their lifestyle, and um, they knew that I didn't agree, which is probably why I was typically the last person that they came out to, um, but we were still friends, and we still loved one another, even though we may not have agreed with one another. And so when it comes to this topic today, what does the Bible say? How, how do we interact with people who may live a different um, lifestyle than what we believe God has created? Yeah, and I think one of the biggest conversations we can have with this starts with our worldview. And we've talked a little bit about worldview over the last couple of months here as part of this series. Uh, but if somebody's system of, of how they ap- approach the world and morality and right and wrong, uh, there are many different kinds of foundations out in our world that people make those decisions on and that people choose accordingly, Right. And so the worldview is where we want to start this conversation. Um, there's something called a biblical worldview. Our authority and who trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior often have a different worldview than those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or those that do not value the authority of Scripture. This is really where that conversation starts for those in the church. The biblical worldview accepts that there is something called absolute truth. This is tough, a tough one in our culture today, Right? Absolute truth is the idea that there are things that do exist, there are ideas, there are truths that are true regardless of external circumstances, regardless of how we feel about them, regardless of how our experience with them has been in the past. Um, Absolute truth is actually the friend of a Christian who is wanting to grow in Christ in the word and become more like Christ. And I say this because Jesus is not an abstract, ever-changing person or authority in our lives. Jesus Christ uh, is the way, the truth, and the life, he says. He is love. He is who he is. We don't worship a Savior who is ever-changing or or being tossed back and forth like a boat on the seas. We worship Jesus who proclaimed himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's this really big thing for Christians uh, that we want to look to our Lord and Savior who is powerful enough to save us from our sins And we want to look to him for what is true and how we experience truth. And when we say that we value absolute truth, we are saying we value Jesus and his truth. Now, a word of caution, saying that we value absolute truth does not assume that we know it all, right? Um, Our our understanding, our knowledge is very finite compared to God, right? And so there are things that we come to better understandings of throughout our lives, and there are things that we're never going to understand in our lives, And so we approach this conversation from a place of humility because we do not know it all. And, uh, but valuing Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, valuing this biblical worldview means that we're on this trajectory that we would be growing in our understanding, living more and more into Jesus's reality for us, and that we would better know Jesus and his truth. Now, the biblical worldview is the dominant worldview among Christians who want to live according to the scripture. Like, that is what we want our foundation to be. Um, The song goes, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-V-L-E, right? 
Um, the Bible is a, an immense treasure, a gift that has been given to us uh, and, and been protected and maintained and withheld so much scrutiny and challenges over the years, yet still here it is in front of us. Um, very, very close to the original manuscripts and their original languages, we have the scriptures in front of us today. This worldview comes with a desire to better understand God and his word and then live accordingly to it, not as a mental sort of download, but as something that changes and transforms our lives. And a biblical worldview is one that accepts that God has chosen to speak to us today through his word over, and over the ages and across time, and that the Holy Spirit is allowing us to understand it more and more each day and working through us to live accordingly. So um, worldviews are not always simple to divide. We, we can say, yes, I have a biblical worldview. It might be more accurate to say, I want to have a more accurate biblical worldview, right? Because again, we haven't arrived. Many people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, we have pieces of worldviews that are not necessarily biblical, and we just haven't come to that understanding yet, right? So here's an example. Um, I've heard people say, I believe in Jesus, and then also say, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. One of those statements, belief in Jesus Christ as powerful Lord and Savior, that supports a biblical worldview. I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven does not support a biblical worldview because it is not about how good we are. It is about the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the fact that we find grace and salvation through him. Make, make sense? Uh, another example is this. Uh, many Christians have worldviews that... Based, that are based on what people think the Bible says rather than what it actually says because we've been taught or told that by somebody else. Uh, one example of that is this. Good people go to heaven. How many of you have ever heard somebody, even in the church, say, good people go to heaven? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we hear that a lot uh, in our culture, and we hear that even in the church. Uh, but again, is it our goodness that earns us a place in heaven? Absolutely not. If it was, Jesus died for nothing. The sacrifice on the cross was for nothing. And so salvation and our eternal destination of paradise with Jesus Christ is based solely on Jesus' work and not on our works to be good enough. Uh, so there's another example there. So a biblical worldview is having a high view of the Bible as truth and therefore living with that truth as our foundation and trusting God's word to speak into our lives and the issues that we face today. And the Bible still speaks into our lives and the issues that we face today is very much relevant. Now, the contrast this biblical worldview with something called a secular worldview. Um, secular worldview is one where God is removed or takes a back seat, where human understanding ebbs and flows. And so the, this idea of morality also ebbs and flows from this direction to that, like a sailing ship with no anchor. Uh, there's a song by Cademan's Call. It's one that we listened to um, in our high school and college years. And a line from this song says, My faith is like shifting sand changed by every wave. This is not how our faith is intended to be because Jesus is not like shifting sand affected by every wave, right? And neither are the scriptures. And so every new idea that culture presents to us shouldn't necessarily blow us to a completely different understanding or position um, on, on morality or truth or things like that. So secularism, when it's played out in our culture and in our world, is much more like a mob rule than it is based on truth. Secularism is also the foundation of Marxism and socialism as government systems, as it drives people to put their trust and their faith in the government and idolize leaders 
rather than to put their faith in the promises of God. And faith in the one true God is actually at odds with the driving forces of these secular worldviews. Where the biblical worldview goes hand-in-hand with absolute truth, the secular worldview goes hand-in-hand with something called moral relativism. Moral relativism says that what I feel is okay and must be good and true. What you feel is okay must be good and true. Relativism puts 100% of the burden on the individual to figure themselves out and define what is true for themselves. Now, hopefully you've gone down this path in your mind before and you've said, that could lead to some issues. And it really does lead to some issues. Under this worldview, I can say that the sky is blue and you can say that it's brown. And I should probably respect that you think it's brown because it's relative to the eye of the beholder, right? Your perspective says this, so okay, you're cool, that's true, that's your truth. Now, don't get me wrong, our our experiences and our emotions do affect what we believe to be true. And that is why it's so important that even our emotions and our experiences be grounded in or processed through the lens of God's truth and the scriptures so that we are not led astray by our emotions that do not come from God or reflect God's love. So moral relativism, if that is the goal, along with secularism, we must understand that nothing can be universally accepted as good, holy, or true. And if we want to live according to secular worldview or moral relativism, we must accept that nothing can be universally accepted as evil, destructive, or bad. And do you see the issue with this in our world today? Yeah. Most of our arguments that divide us as a church, as a culture, as a world, as governments, whatever it is, come because there's pieces of worldview and sometimes entire worldviews that are built on relativism and secularism rather than God's truth. Now, we should accept that to be true and know that it's probably always going to be true until Jesus comes back. But this is why it's so important for us to understand in the world that we live in today. This worldview of moral relativism or secularism is at direct odds with the authority of Scripture. The world says that there are many different ways. God says that Jesus is the way. And the world says that truth is relative, but Jesus says that you can only actually know the truth if you know him personally, because he is the embodiment of truth in the world revealed to us. And it pertains to our topic today of sexuality. The world says that what you feel and think is true and should be celebrated and acted on. Whereas God says that you have been created male or female, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that sexuality is designed to be lived out and experienced within the covenant of marriage that we talked about in depth last week. So again, why is all this talk of worldview relevant? It's because we live in a world that speaks many different worldview languages, right? And even within this room, there, there are probably different pieces of worldview in each of our lives because we are all broken and sinful and in need of a Savior and constant redeeming. There's pieces of our worldviews um, that don't necessarily measure up to God's Scripture and God's truth. If we understand this difference in worldview, it's going to change how we minister to the world around us. It's going to change how we view this conversation and how we engage with it. It will actually save us from many unnecessary arguments or contentious conversations uh, where we speak a biblical or Christian language to somebody who doesn't. Difference in worldview, we will find that talking about Jesus and his love is often much more necessary than trying to convince someone of what is sinful 
and what is not. It's when somebody comes under the same understanding of a worldview or the same understanding of the source of truth or authority that we then can begin to work on some of those things. But if people are in two different places, two completely different understandings of the purpose of the world and humanity, and is there a God or not a God, is there Jesus who loves me, is there not Jesus who loves me, we're going to have a very different conversation with somebody if we understand this piece on worldview. We're going to speak a little bit more to that later in how we engage with our culture. So when it comes to sexuality and worldview, where do we find our culture today? Where do we find our culture today? Uh, First, let's be clear that the evil one does not like God's design for our lives, right? We see this played out through the entirety of Scripture, even with Jesus himself. The evil one tries to undermine and change what God is doing to be good and holy and true in the world, to counterfeit it, to cheapen it, to confuse it. And so this war between darkness and light is obvious in our culture in uncountable ways, both inside the conversation of sexuality and outside of it. Now remember the story of Daniel. We talked about Babylon and the exile of the Israelites in Babylon back towards the beginning of this series. Babylon wanted to re-educate all of the Hebrew people and the influential leaders, right? And this happens in our culture over and over in many different contexts all of the time. And when it comes to sexuality, our culture cares more about freedom of sexual expression than it actually does about the life of the child in some ways. Our culture values freedom of expression and diversity of thought and any form of expression that you can dream up as long as you aren't believing anything that would make somebody else wrong. And again, that's the problem that the world has with Christianity and with a biblical worldview. So our culture, in this way of moral relativism and secularism, um, it is built an idol of sex and sexuality. I, I think we can all agree that. We can see it. It's all over the place. And I think there's a few different reasons for this. One of those is because um, it produces immediate gratification. Why wait for something that you can have now? This is one of the pinnacles of fallen humanity and their sin, is that we want everything now, right? Um, That's why we need to learn and and grow and become more mature and more patient. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit working in our lives. Another reason uh, that we've idolized this is that we've mistaken lust for love, and I think that's a big one. In a world that does not know what love is, apart from God, uh, we've been left to our own devices to define that and decide for ourselves what love is when God says that he is love and that Jesus is embodying the love of the Father. Uh, Lust is not love. It is not. And so many people in this world think that acting on their lust is actually acting in love, and it is not. There is a lust leads to death and destruction, as our scriptures have told us this morning, Um, but love leads to Jesus Christ. And so if we are loving one another, that's the trajectory that our relationships are going to. Another reason that we've idolized this, maybe the most obvious, it sells. Sex sells. Or else there wouldn't be so many terrible things on Netflix or Hulu or on the internet or on primetime TV or during halftime shows or whatever it is. It sells. And people keep buying it, and that's why they keep producing it, right? Another reason, it is highly addictive. It's just as addictive as a chemical substance. It's just as addictive as a, as a bad habit or a process addiction. So, again, if it's addictive in itself, they're going to keep producing it and keep us addicted, right? This is what our culture wants. Uh, Another reason, uh, 
is that our culture has an absolute disrespect for another human being's dignity. And, and you may say, oh, that's the opposite of this conversation. No, I think it is. Um, pornography does absolutely nothing for somebody's dignity, yet we have millions of people in this country buying it and addicted to it. Pressuring sex rather than prioritizing mental or emotional or spiritual connection in a relationship, that is an absolute disregard for the dignity of that person, right? And so we get confused. We get turned upside down. And at the bottom of the conversation here, we are confused as a culture. We are confused. When someone is feeling confused about who they are, we tell them to explore that, and even if they are young or going through puberty, we tell them that they get to choose who they are in the midst of this confusion. When what they really need is a mentor who loves them, who is patient, who can speak truth into their lives. So all of that worldview and cultural diagnosis to bring us to this. Today we want to land on a biblical worldview. We want to take steps in that direction. And we can do that no matter where we are at. Even if we're struggling with this conversation or this topic, uh, we can be open to what God has to speak into that today. And so we want to look at what the Bible calls and includes as sin in that area. And we also want to talk about what the Bible calls holy and good. What does God bless and, and what does God call us to do in a world and in a culture that doesn't look that different than the culture which Jesus was walking in in the Roman Empire of the time? And so we'll talk in terms of our culture and how we then engage as Christians with that culture as we move forward here. Allison. All right. So we want to go ahead and just really dive into what does the Bible say about anything regarding sexuality? And so um, I want to take you back again. I think this is probably the third or fourth time that we've talked about Genesis 1 and 2 and God's created design for male and female, um, how they were not ashamed of their gender, they were not ashamed of their sexuality, um, and this was the first marriage between Adam and Eve, male and female, as God designed it to be. Um, looking in further into the Old Testament, um, a lot of people, when it comes to homosexuality and what the Bible says about it, they will go to Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, this story is about two cities, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, where two are, were angels of the Lord, um, came to visit the family of Lot, who is the nephew of Abraham, and they came to warn Lot's family to flee because God was going to bring his wrath against the wickedness of these cities. Um, he's going to destroy them. And a lot of people look at this passage and only point out the homosexual portion of that story, um, when really that is just one part of the long list of perversion and wickedness that was taking place in these cities. Um, they had a severe pride issue, full of greed, and they didn't care about the poor and the needy, and that was enough for God to say, these cities have turned against me, their wickedness has turned to their fate, I've turned my favor away from them, and I'm going to destroy them. Um, so, Yes, there is sexuality built into that wickedness and perversion of those cities, but there is also a greater sin issue happening in those cities. Um, in Leviticus, in the Levitical law, there are two passages, Leviticus 18, 22, and 20, 13, that talk about homosexuality. And it specifically talks about the acts of homosexuality as um, one of the things that break God's law along with a long list of other sexual sins, like adultery, incest, bestiality. 
And it didn't say that struggling with those feelings were sinful, but then committing the acts were. So for us in our culture, I don't think we can look at somebody who is struggling with homosexual feelings or thoughts and label them as a sinner. Um, it's when they begin living that out and giving into those actions with another person where then it becomes sinful and goes against God's design. Um, there are even people I know in this world who would say they have these homosexual feelings but are Christians and choose not to give in to those thoughts um, or those actions because they know that that would be wrong and so they choose to abstain from it. So that's, that's just the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot more in the New Testament, and we're going to begin with Romans 1, and I'm going to read it for us on the screen. It's quite long, so please bear with me. It says, For I am not ashamed, this is Paul talking here, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world— remember the very beginning, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images that made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts to be sexually to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, sounds like our world today, and worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves for due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they did what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree, that, they, that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Whew, that was a lot in there. Um, first, I want to point out that it talks about righteous living in the beginning of Romans and how righteous living or living according to what God designed um, comes from knowing Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it comes from believing it and submitting to it and living it out. And as we live by faith, 
It's then that we receive salvation and learn what it means to live a life for the Lord that honors him. And this is one of the most crucial passages in the New Testament because it speaks to all homosexual behavior um, between men and women. Um, Paul talks about how it is unrighteous to exchange what is natural. Think of creation from the very beginning for what is unnatural when it comes to how we live our lives, specifically when it comes to sexuality. However, this isn't listed as the one and only sin. It's included in a long list of other futile and senseless thinking that leads to destruction, which we um, just read. And so all of these sins are described as symptoms of a broken and fallen world in need of a savior. And they, they are all part of this confusion of the world, and that includes homosexuality, which means we cannot set homosexuality as a higher sin or, or higher standard of, of any one of our own sins. It means that we are all falling short. Um, in the sickness of all of humanity. And so what Paul here is saying is that if you rebel against God, do not acknowledge him, um, that then it's kind of like the story of the prodigal son. He says, you have free will to go live your life the way that you want, but you will not have my favor. You're going to lead down a way of destructive, uh, destructive course, and I am going to wait here in hopes that you will return to me receive the truth of the gospel, and receive the mercy that he longs to give to you. A few other passages in the Bible, it looks at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy 1, 10, and Acts 15, 28 through 29. Now, all of these three passages, I'm not going to read them all, um, but they all use similar language for homosexuality that is used in um, the law, um, if Leviticus, those words are malakoi and arsenikoitai, which refer to lying with a male as with a female. And a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they will look at different translations and see, well, what is it saying here? Does it say homosexuality? Does it say sexual immorality? Um, does it just say futile or perversion? And they will take these different versions and twist them around in order to justify their sinful actions. Um, one of the most um, best, the best translations of 1 Corinthians 6 passage says um, in the Berean Study Bible, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who submit to or perform homosexual actions, dot, 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 um, if you want to go read more of that. So um, this means that, yes, homosexuality is listed as a sin. And this is one sin among other sexual sins. Um, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, greedy, drunkards, etc. So understanding God's law and his New Testament and the people of God, it's imperative because it's how we stand up for the truth of Scripture. Um, there are people who want to ju justify their actions by twisting Scripture um, in order to live a life outside of God's design, and that simply isn't living out the truth of Scripture, um, because we can't just change it in order to fit our feelings or our wants or our needs. Um, and we need a re good reminder that God's Word is challenging. It can be offensive, but that doesn't give us the right to change it. Yes. <clears throat> All right. So, Talked about Old Testament, New Testament. What about Jesus? What does Jesus have to say about this? 
Jesus' teachings on sexual immorality um, are scattered a little bit, but primarily we find those in Matthew 5 and in Mark chapter 7. Uh, now, Ma- Matthew chapter 5, this is the, I'll give you a refresher, we don't have time to read it all here this morning, uh, but this is the part where Jesus says that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're actually liable for the same judgment whether you act on that hatred or not, right? There, there are things that we can have in our minds and our hearts that we cling to and that we hold on to that are actually classified as sin through the words and teachings of Jesus. He then talks about lust, and he says that committing adultery is not just an action, but it actually happens when we lust in our hearts and minds first. And so when Jesus touches on divorce that we talked about last week, um, that's what he's saying. And this theme here in Matthew 5 is actually one of Jesus saying sin is actually bigger than you think it is. It's not just when you act on something that you've been harboring in your heart or in your mind. He's arguing that sin is a condition of the heart before it is ever acted on. And this is really important for us when Paul writes all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. Many of us try to justify ourselves, if we're honest, based on what we actually act out on, but there's a whole lot of things that go on in our hearts and our minds that Jesus needs to bring redemption to as well. And in all these things, Jesus isn't loosening the law of the Old Testament. He's making it even more strict because Jesus cares not just about our actions. He cares about our hearts, our motives, all that we are as well. Jesus does a similar thing in Mark chapter 7. Uh, He says that what we put into our bodies doesn't so much defile us as what comes out of our bodies because in our hearts lies the capacity for a multitude of sins. And included in those are adultery, sensuality, sexual immorality, and a number of other things. And when we say sexual immorality, this is a term I don't think we've defined yet here. When we say sexual immorality, the Bible Bible is basically using that to categorize any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So, So that's kind of the standard. That's what God blesses in the scriptures. That's what Jesus upholds again and again. And sexual immorality is when we stray from that and when we think or harbor things in our hearts or act differently. The Bible blesses no other sexual expression outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And so many people in this conversation ask, why doesn't Jesus mention homosexuality or any of these other issues surrounding sexuality by name? And many might think that this somehow proves that Jesus was okay with it. If it was a big deal, he would have said something about it. Um, We need some historical context to answer that question. And the most important piece is this. Uh, The idea that sexual expression outside of marriage was okay, it was not a debated issue among God's people, among the Pharisees, the Jews. It was not a debated issue at that time, at the time of Jesus within God's community. It wasn't a debated issue. And it wasn't at the time of Paul within God's people. Yet Paul was writing to who? Gentiles in many different areas, uh, people who had come to faith from outside the historical perspective of the Jews and God's people. So Paul is bringing it up by name in a few different places. Um, Jesus is not, but the absence of the debate in Jesus's words in the New Testament does not mean that it didn't matter, and it does not mean that it wasn't an issue. In fact, it's the opposite. It mattered so much what God had told their ancestors, revealed to them under the law time and time again, it mattered so much that they accepted what he taught on sexuality as truth. And the contrast to that truth, as we read through the entire Old Testament again into Jesus' time and through the book of Acts and Paul's writings, 
The contrast to that truth is what they see being lived out in pagan cultures around them, in people that do not know God nor care to follow God and his commands. The pagans had temples with sexual themes and prostitutes. The false gods demanded that certain sexual deviations were actually necessary to please them, to please the gods. And the cultures that did not understand their creator, they worshipped other gods. They worshipped other things. They had different uh, morality standards. They expressed their sexuality in countless different ways that time and time again conflicted with what God had revealed to be good and holy and true. And so in ancient Israel and in Jesus' time and in the early church, God's people were called to live differently. This is consistent. According to God's design, God's plans, and the life in Christ that God had prepared for them. And so Jesus and Paul in the New Testament do not consider this sin, again, this is important, to be any greater than any other sin, which is why it always appears in a list with other things. There are a multitude of sins that make up our lives, and God's grace is big enough to save us from all of them. And that doesn't mean we experience that salvation in an instant. Sometimes we do, but sometimes there are things that we struggle with our entire lives. Paul writes of a thorn in his flesh, right? And he prayed three times that God would take it away, but for some reason, God didn't. And he says, you know what, God, my grace, your grace is sufficient for me and is made perfect in my weakness. And so what we learn in the New Testament with Jesus' words and with Paul, we learn that sexual immorality is this term that blankets everything outside of God's design for marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. And again, there's no biblical teaching in the Old or the New Testament that undermines or subverts what God ordains in the natural creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It is consistently upheld. And Jesus, being a perfect Jew... Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. Again, if he wasn't, his death on the cross didn't mean anything for us. Um, He was getting what he deserved, but he took on what we deserved because he was sinless. So Jesus grew up as part of God's people. He lived out the law to the letter. And Jesus, being a perfect Jew, was not dismissing the issue of non-heterosexual feelings. Rather, he was enforcing and uplifting over and over God's design for marriage, sexuality, and purity. And Paul, he writes about it more again because he was primarily writing to Gentile Christians in towns and communities that had these temples where all of these other things were going on. And a culture that was pagan and had sexual values was one that needed God's people to live set apart. So if we're hoping to find a better understanding of God's authority in the scriptures in this area, um, know this. We cannot reconcile a biblical worldview of sexuality with an acceptance or blessing of any sexual activity or expression outside of biblical marriage. We can't do it. It doesn't mean we don't have the struggles. It doesn't mean we don't slip up. It doesn't mean we don't have sin. But it means if, if our standard is to have a biblical worldview, if that's our trajectory, our hope, our, our goal to know Christ and to live like Christ, we can't reconcile with all these other things that our culture values and says is okay. Nor, and this is a big one, nor can we dismiss the biblical worldview of God's love, of acting lovingly, of having grace and showing mercy, of practicing forgiveness. That's just as big of a part of this biblical worldview as what God defines as sin. And that's how we are supposed to act, which is why a few weeks ago we had a sermon called Love Thy Neighbor. This is the ethic, this is the foundation with which God's people 
were meant to show to the world that they had been transformed by the love of their Father through Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we act? Allison's going to talk about now, if this is our foundation, how do we engage with the culture around us? All right. Just know that sermons, this isn't like the length of our sermons. This isn't like a new precedent that we're going to be preaching forever. <laughs> we're almost done. But we can't end there. We have to talk about what, how do we live then? Um, Billy Graham has a great quote called, It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Um, one of the ways that I have been preparing for the sermon for a long time now is by looking at a man named Beckett Cook. Um, Beckett Cook um, is a man who used to live a homosexual lifestyle in Hollywood for many years until he came to know Christ and then repented of his way of life and then chose to speak. And, and now, even today, he speaks boldly for Christ through his story. He has a book called the Cha A Change of Affection, which I found really helpful. And then he also has a podcast um, where he actively speaks out on issues of sexuality, especially um, among children. Um, and so I would greatly invite you to look at his podcast. And so in his experience, he shares what not to do. What not to do if someone you love comes out to you um, as living homosexual, homosexual, or if you become friends with someone who is um, living a different sexual lifestyle than the biblical worldview. First is that um, we should not make them feel ashamed for who they are and the way they live by saying things like, well, this is just a phase, or this isn't you, this isn't who you are. Um, even though those may be true statements, they can really bring a lot of hurt and shame to somebody and cause complete distrust. And if there is distrust, there is no way to bridge a gap to Jesus um, for them. Um, it says, do not to, he says, do not push them away and cut off all ties from them, such as like a parent. If a child comes to you and says that they're struggling with these feelings, telling them they're wrong and kicking them out of the house is only going to distance and cause break ties and, again, leave no room for Jesus. Do not send people away to a specialist who will fix cases like this. Um, that can actually be really traumatic for people because we don't know what those people are saying, um, and they may not have a Jesus love type of worldview. Um, if it's your child, do not punish them by putting them in their room, taking away their electronics, and um, taking away time from friends. Um, that's not the approach that you want to take. Um, and then also, do not have an intervention where you sit down and spew Bible verses like we've just talked about at them, telling them they are a sinner and going to hell. Those are not the ways that are going to bring them to Jesus. He prov provides a better way, is what he says. One is that, recognize that if somebody comes out to you um, with these feelings, that you are going to go through a period of grieving um, because of their choices. But instead of taking your grief and your frustration out on that person, you need to take that to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit. Um, pray the Psalms, pray prayers that they would turn from darkness to light, um, and instead show them a lot of love and take time with them as they process this. Um, Think about the story of the prodigal son. We mentioned this briefly, that the father lets his child go even though he knows that that's on a destructive path. Um, he doesn't punish him 
Um, but he does grieve the loss of his son. As it says, he stands waiting for his son to come and thought that he was lost and dead. But when he came back, look at the example of the, the other brother. Um, the other brother saw his brother as completely unworthy for the choices that he's made. But his father, when his child comes home, doesn't punish him. He welcomes him and loves him and celebrates him. Beckett Cook shares a story about how there was many people in his life when he chose to live a homosexual lifestyle who cast him out, um, would spew Bible verses at him or tell him he was wrong. But one person who spoke so kindly and lovingly to him was his sister-in-law. Um, for 20 years, she prayed that he would turn from darkness to light. Um, she was a strong Christian and outspoken believer, um, but she never spewed Bible verses at him or condemned him. Um, instead, nothing really changed in their relationship except that he was gay and she knew that he was and they still loved each other. She had an unconditional love for him and didn't withhold love from him because of the way he lived, which created trust between them and an opportunity for Jesus to be shown between them. And they would meet often, and he would talk about his lifestyle, and she would talk about her relationship with Jesus, and it didn't bother him because he knew he wasn't condemned by her. So then what can we do then? First, we need to love and we need to pray. Um, we need to show more compassion, more care, not seek to win a debate, but we need to practice what it says in Ephesians 4.15, which is to speak the truth in love which means we can still have our biblical convictions and worldviews um, and share those with others, but we can do that without con condemning people and judging them. So keep being friends with those people. Treat them as your loved ones and your family. And if you show them loved and they reject you, then that's on them, not on you. Because so many times in our world, we hear the phrase that if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me, and that's simply not true. We can love other people even if we don't agree with them. And part of loving someone is praying for them. So pray for them. Pray for them regularly. Next is we need to recognize our own sin. Again, like I said, homosexuality is not this other sin outside of our worldview of sin. Sin is sin. And so too often we point out the sin of other people instead of recognizing our own. And we need to realize we're all in the same camp. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Um, and so I want to encourage you also, um, do not give up submitting all of your life to the Lord. We need to submit every part of our life, our sexuality, whether we're straight or not, um, our actions, our money, everything that we have and all that we are to the Lord. And then we need to recognize that it's the Holy Spirit. It's their job to convict sin. We need to bring them to Jesus and it's then that they will meet the Holy Spirit and find conviction of sin. Um, and so as the church, the church across culture today, we have a choice. Um, do we follow the path that gives God glory and respects God's authority and truth? Are we willing to struggle with hard things? Or do we follow the path where we tinker with Scripture, um, downplay Jesus' teachings and Paul's teachings, and reject God's truth? What we need to remember is that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And so we can stand up for the world, uh, or for the biblical worldview, um, and still show God's kindness and his love to people. Um, so I want to challenge you to set your heart on things above, 
practice humility, recognize your own sin, and encourage everyone to run towards God's kindness. So I want to, I know that this has been a long, long sermon. Thank you for bearing with us. If there are things that you're still questioning, wrestling with, take it to the Holy Spirit, bring it to us so we can have those further conversations. We know this was long. We didn't want to split this up into two sermons because we felt like it was all necessary to be together. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to prepare to move into communion, and we understand that if it's late and you need to go, we understand. But thank you for listening to this with us. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your kindness, for your goodness for us, that though we are all sinners, um, you are a God who shows complete care and compassion, and you are the only one who can truly redeem us from our sin. And I pray that in our own relationships with others and in the church, that we would be people who demonstrate your love and your kindness, that we would love thy neighbor without condemnation, love thy neighbor without casting them down or shaming them. Um, but Lord, I pray for conversations um, and trust to be formed between people who do not agree with this worldview so that we can be people who shine the light of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.